Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six oh, days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you shawny man? God, they said we should do away with FA Cup replays, but then we would have been denied the, well... Half-hour feast of football we saw on Match of the Day last night. Uh, Lucas Leva scores his first goal since 2010. Yeah. Uh, Shane Long has goal fever. The only cure, Ken. More goals. Yeah, yeah. And as a result of Lincoln City, we all believe in the FA Cup again, right? Right? Uh, well, well, why, though? Why is that? Uh, well, it's the Irish Town Second Captain's uh, football podcast. with Murph Ken. Hello, Ken. Uh, we, well, we're, we believe in the FA Cup. Because we saw one of the great giant-killing acts of all time. But I do have a bit of a problem with that narrative, Ken. Why? Because there didn't appear to me to be a giant in the ring on Tuesday night. I don't know if you were watching it on BBC. I saw the last ten minutes of it, actually. I didn't see it. I didn't uh, see it. I, I don't think I'd missed much up, up until the last ten minutes and I saw the mm. winning goal. But Ipswich are 59 places above them in the football pyramid. Yeah. I get that. I get the football pyramid. I get how it works, Ken. Yeah. But... Ipswich are 14th in the championship. I mean, they're not exactly giant. I mean, they're second rows. You know, they're like beanpole striker. That's mm. what got killed. Well, what, not, a, what, not a giant, really. What does a giant have to be in order to qualify as a giant? That guy that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, the eight-foot guy for, um, uh, from Ireland that ended up serving in the Prussian guard or whatever the hell it was. Did he? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's what you were saying. You were reading a Wikipedia page while you were live... Uh, so I, 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 I forgive you for not remembering the exact details. Those things only stay in my memory for about 10 seconds. Literally as you're reading them. I mean, but what is a, what is a giant? I mean, by your definition, then Goliath wouldn't have been a giant. Ah, oh, he was eight foot tall if he was an inch, Ken. Six surely. foot seven, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Was he? Hmm. But then see, of course... King James Bible claims he was nine foot nine. Well, now you're talking. I was, I've always been more of a King James man myself. Uh, but no... Well, I mean, there were, people were a lot smaller back then, you know? Yeah. I mean, there was a whole different... I mean, they, they tell the story of La Scala in Milan, don't they? 
built in 1905 or something. By a giant? No, not by a giant, but the seats are so tiny that no one, they, they had to be retrofitted a couple of years ago because even in 1905, the average height of someone was so much smaller than it is now. Well, actually, we've, we're currently sitting in the uh, studio on the top uh, floor of a kind of Georgian building, which I guess must be 200-odd years old, mm. maybe a bit older than that even. Yeah. And I hit my head almost every day on the door coming in here. I did actually just there a couple of minutes ago bringing in tea. It's something for McDevitt to think about, actually, just that before the show started, I felt that you... Mm. And our producer Simon should be presented with a cup of tea, just so they're all nice and relaxed. Yeah. Of course, I di- I, I made a cup of tea for myself and then whacked my head off the door frame, which did kind of take the relaxation element out of it. But nevertheless, was there any ingenuity in Ipswich's defeat of the slaying of this giant Ipswich Town, Mick McCarthy's Ipswich Town? Well, not not really. I mean, I think it was a, a lot of huffing and puffing, and then a late goal, and like then a, they didn't have to hang on. Like then. a straight a straight fight, like almost an arm wrestle. Yeah. Just a very weak giant. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Usually there has to be some trickery involved if you yeah. want to... That's exactly it. I mean, the, the, the giant, it wasn't really a giant killing at all. You get them drunk. That was, That's one mm. pop, popular way. That, that was the... Uh, that's the um, Odysseus and the cy- Cyclops. Yeah. Get them drunk, put out their single eye. Mm. Then the tables are turned. Yeah. Then there was... Um, Jack and the Beanstalk. Then there was that uh, uh, telegram, which was actually a bomb. That's what did for Mongo in uh, Blazing Saddles. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that. No, there was certainly that's the sort of ingenuity we're talking about, Ken. There is usually some trickery involved, yeah. uh, not from the imps on this occasion. Mm-hmm. As well as uh, match of the day last night, uh, we've also got a chance to feature some clips from my second favorite late night television show, which is of course the Oireachtas Report. Uh, a quick sample here from the Joint Committee on Tourism, Transport and Sport yesterday. First of all, I'd like to welcome John Delaney here today. Trying to be critical as well being possible. Building a house, you build the foundations first, the chimneys are top, the chimney for us. It's international football. As well, to, to John Delaney, you know, um... uh, The pleasure, the entertainment, the organisation, the skills that you take to everybody is fantastic. But you don't have a chimney unless you've got a very strong foundation. <laughs> So the grand designs of uh, John Delaney. We, di- we didn't really get a chance to hear too many of the grand designs. We, the devil was in the detail yesterday. Uh, it was a bit of a farce. N- not anything to do with John Delaney, Porrick Duffy or Philip Brand, the heads of our three major field sports, to be fair. Yeah. Um, they sat there, managed to keep a straight face. as uh, There was some pretty horrendous questioning going on yesterday. It was... Uh, I tell you... It left me with a certain sort of sinking feeling about our republic, mm. you know. Uh, I, I don't know if every I, d- I don't see every dull committee hearing. I, I don't often watch them. I have to say, mm. uh, I, I just watch Arachnus reports for the the banging tunes. To be honest, I, I, I zone out. You know the musical interludes in Arachnus. Maybe I've just dreamt those. Anyway, sorry, Ken. Go on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Emmett uh, Malone was there yesterday. Um, he's going to come in and, and talk to us a little bit about that. Um, less than revelatory hearing mm. uh, involving John Delaney and, and the Mops heads of the Queen Avengers. tomorrow too, don't forget that. <laughs> he was. He had to rush away yesterday as well, funnily enough. But uh, we'll have some report on sport music, I suppose, Ken. What's on the agenda today? 
Well, Jürgen, you mentioned Liverpool beating Plymouth. Jurgen Klopp was then asked to slay a giant of his own in the press conference in the form of a giant Cornish pasty. Nice. Which he was presented with. And I thought, I mean, was it rude? Klopp kind of looked at this thing with obvious revulsion. I mean, the 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 pasty was was um, I'm trying to think how big. I mean, Three the size of a small a pig. Yeah. You know, in a in a box, in a presentation box, and it had like Jurgen Klopp written on it in pastry in the in the top, and you know, welcome to to Plymouth or whatever it was. And, and Klopp just looked at it, kind of turned up his nose and said, "Well, I don't eat carbohydrates." Mm. I thought, is that true? Does he really not? I know Thomas Tuchel doesn't eat carbohydrates. I wonder if there's a little bit of one-upmanship going on there yeah. between the two um, great former or present and former Dortmund coaches. I mean, it looked, it did look disgusting. Well, I mean, it's, it looked like a giant Cornish pasty. I mean, it depends on your opinion of, of a pasty. And also things that are foodstuffs that are the size of a small pig, as you said. I mean, I'd, I mean... Too much of anything's not great. Well, the problem, even, no matter the, how nice it the is, the problem I always have with pasties is the superheated nature of the the meat filling. Mm. You know, you got this uh, this often soggy pastry, I guess, bladder surrounding a superheated meat, uh, you know, yeah. bolus. Um, and and the the bigger you make, you just nicked that from an ad campaign, did you? <laughs> the bigger you make that. That bolus, the hotter the center of that, and, and the high and the the higher its kind of capacity to to retain its heat for a long, long time. Yeah. Until eventually, I guess the 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 actual pastry, the the in which it's enrobed, will have dissolved mm. almost. You know, I suppose it would be one to share in the team. Was maybe cut it open. Everyone can kind of dig in if you have got some plastic cutlery. Great, you know, or at least some nap- napkins. Yeah, but it, it, even just thinking of it. Say it's your your average size size pasty, you're saying, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. By the way, Super the key hot, problem is is heating it correctly. Yeah. So if you've got a pasty three foot by two foot or whatever it is, mm. I mean trying to get that trying to get the temperature that right reg- temperature of that regulated. It's, it's I mean, impossible. It's, just, it's a complete impossible. It's not meant to be. But look, um, that was so there into the fourth round. Now, now uh, there are some big games in the Premier League this weekend. There's Manchester City against Tottenham is a very interesting game. Tottenham obviously won the. Uh, the first fixture of White Hart Lane pretty decisively. And there's a very interesting interview with Maurizio Pochettino in La Nación in Argentina, um, which has been translated into English. And, uh, yeah, he has a lot to say. I think it's quite interesting to listen to some of these quotes. Um, Christian Grosso, I think, is the name of the journalist he was speaking to for the Argentine paper. Uh, For some reason, it begins with a lot of quotes about... um, Pochettino's contempt for social media and the sort of neediness of people who are on it. Um, uh, he says, uh, "People, don't, you're a public figure. People demand things of you. Uh, I know that. I feel comfortable giving the bare minimum, which is what I naturally feel I should do. I know I could sell myself better. Go to a thousand places, open up a Twitter account, post photos and say, I am here, I am there. But I think that is frivolous and superficial. Mind you, I respect that others do it. Doesn't really respect that others do no. um, He says, it feels, if it feels comfortable doing that, doing that then fine. Uh, I don't need to have people show me affection to feel good. The recognition I get from my friends, family, and loved ones suffices. I don't look to be popular. 
I don't need to do something, post it, look at the comments, and that will motivate me later on to inflate my ego. I don't need thousands of followers on Twitter to be happy. No, I don't need that to feed me. <laughs> How many uh, Premier League managers are on Twitter? Uh, uh, Koeman. Koeman's on Twitter. He, he tweets regularly. Um, Mourinho's on Instagram. Yeah. Um, trying to think who else. I mean, like... I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of players are. Yeah, obviously. a lot of players are obviously. But I mean, I don't. I, yeah, there's not many managers really, are there? Um, mm, uh, I can't. I can't think of too many others in the, in the Premier League. I mean, there probably are a couple, but but Cumin uh, anyway, and uh, not Pochettino. Uh, he talks about the, there's lots of questions as you would expect when he's speaking back uh, to the media back home about you know the situation in Argentina, and he kind of is coy about the idea of. Managing Newell's old boys, you know, he, he like Lionel Messi, is a Newell's man hmm. uh, in Rosario. And um, he says it's his dream to coach them, but not right now. They kind of ask him, they prod him a bit to talk about the uh, situation in Argentine, uh, Argentine football. Um, and again, he, he kind of fights shy, saying, yes, I do hear about certain news and people that denounce the current state of Argentine football and its administrators, but it would not be prudent to give an opinion. I don't want to wash my hands. I just don't know what's going on. To give an opinion that is probably inaccurate, well, I believe the most appropriate thing is to see things from the outside. I just can't seem to understand it. Um, and anyway, I'm, I'm fine at Tottenham. Uh, it goes on to talk about football being a state of mind, um, which is something he talks about, I guess, a lot uh, with Spurs. Um, but the, he's interesting talking about the... Because this is, this is slightly different from the impression that I have of Pochettino in terms of the way that he does things. Yeah. Uh, how do you lead the new generations? He's asked, you know, younger younger people. Hmm. You have to try to feel things the way they do, show empathy. Nowadays, the more human leader is the one that is successful. The iron fist is a thing of the past. The kids also feel passion, but you have to help them discover it, discover inspiration. More than motivate them, you have to take care of them. Today, everything tends to make relationships, co relationships colder. You have to maintain them via text messages, WhatsApp, Skype. It's very difficult for people nowadays to create a relationship, to look people in the eye, to touch another person. Those of us that come from another generation have the responsibility to not have this new generation forget how to touch, talk to each other, relate. All of that is what football consists of. Tactics are nothing more than the relationship that you have with your teammates. Based on how we relate amongst each other, we will define how we act. It's weird because I, I actually thought he managed mostly via uh, memes. <laughs> well, I thought he, he managed completely by the iron fist. Mm. Two iron fists. Well, one iron fist and maybe the other, on the other hand, is an iron hook. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm thinking about Andros Townsend makes yeah. all this. Yeah. You know, Andros, I'm sure Andros Townsend, if he does come across this interview, will be uh, raising an eyebrow with some of this human talk mm. uh, from Mitzio uh, Pochettino. Uh, honesty is the most important thing. Uh, you have to trust yourself at honesty in front of everything else. This will help you never be wrong. You can be upset. You can show your less appealing side. But you will always be you. Uh, basically, the worst thing you can do to a player is to hide who you are, act one way, and then act another. Um, it's like with your kids. Um, you can say, but I raise my kids the same way, with the same values. But yet, one, you reach one way, and another, another way. In football, it is very similar to home. So, oh, Barla laughs at the Pochettino household. Then <laughs> uh, he's he's got some complimentary things to say also about English football. 
yeah, I mean, well, here's here's something I guess which might get a bit of play in the English media. In Europe, English football is underestimated. They still believe it is the same type of football that was played 30 or 40 years ago. The long ball game. Sometimes it is to the point of disdain for the English football or English culture. I think he's becoming a real, a proper football man. Mm. He says maybe that is changing slowly because the financial muscle is here. Uh, big stars, with the exception of those who play for Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern, Juventus come here. Uh, this is an interesting point he makes. There's an uncontrolled passion for football in England, but in a respectful manner. It's where the footballer or the coach are like an actor or a doctor. They are respected by society. They are a person with a talent and the and garners and they garner the admi- admiration of society, like a doctor. I would have thought actually doctors in the UK felt quite downtrodden. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, in working in the yeah, uh, and Cameron's uh, public. Well, not Cameron anymore, but mm. our Premier public League sector. Is he talking about players or managers? He's talking about players and managers. The footballer there. or the coach. Yeah. Uh, in Argentina, South America, there's something in Argentina, in South America or other parts of Europe that creates envy. Anyone there feels it is within their right to discredit or insult you. Here, mm. that is sacred. That's interesting because I was actually reading uh, Marina Hyde yesterday in The Guardian mm. talking about how uh, Jeremy Corbyn had basically gone off on one about, you know, English, wages. Yeah, just being obscene, you know, mm. uh, and uh, basically saying that it's the laziest thing in the world and it's also one of the most regularly said things in the world by politicians. It's mm. like, you know, footballers, you know, it's 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 their pinata for people to just slag them off for the amount of money they're making. Yeah. Which uh, is kind of the opposite of the point that Pochettino I to be honest, I would I would say that I would have come across more of what Marina Hyde is talking about than what Pochettino is talking about there, to be honest. Yeah. And I don't know how respected Wayne Rooney is. Uh, in all strata of society, well, that's why it's that weird that that weird thing, isn't it? It's where, in um, him. He's Irish upbringing. It's it's that weird thing where where Rooney. I, I mean, you know, Rooney's public image obviously isn't quite as high as it was. I mean, I remember being at Old Trafford two thousand and six, uh, Roy Keane's testimonial, and Rooney, at some point, came into the stand. He wasn't playing mm. for some reason. He must be. It was just before the World Cup. I remember he was injured. He had that yeah. foot problem or whatever. And he came out into the stand at some point, sort of during the game. And you knew that you knew this had happened because the whole place started chanting Rune, Rune. You know what I mean? Mm. It was like this hero worship, which he didn't get, I guess, so much anymore. But I'm sure that Wayne Rooney, if he ever is, you know, if, if Wayne Actually, Rooney is sitting on the train, yeah, uh, you know, he gets nothing but people um, coming up, you know, adoringly. And saying, "Oh Wayne, you know, can I get a photograph with you? Mm. Uh, you're amazing." I, gu- I guess that wherever, whatever room he's in, everyone in it is, is always excited to meet him. Yeah. But then people do, you know, when he's not physically present, slag him off, call him a stagnant disgrace, and you know, and all that. It's just, yeah. it's just yeah, well, the way it maybe goes. Rudy's, maybe Rudy's like you know, is Mark Noble, you know, treated as sacred in English society, or do people just think he's a footballer who's Got he's the luckiest man alive because he's getting paid forty grand a, well, I think, a week. I think, you know what I mean? I, I, I like I do actually think that footballers are looked down upon quite a bit by English people. Well, I think Henry Winter actually mentioned Mark Noble the other day, along with uh, like Gerard Toddy, um, Giggs, Skills, uh, as a one club man. Um, of course, Gerard wasn't a one club man in the end, is he? Hmm. Uh, we'll 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 step over that. Um, <laughs> Steven Gerrard has already forgotten it, so we should too. But that was that. Uh, Pochettino saying, you know, you, f- you go to matches in Spain or Argentina, you feel embarrassed. Half of the people go for political reasons. They insult, injure, and create problems. It's hard to say, but English football is an example to follow. 
in Argentina because of all that has happened, because of the difficult history we've had, we still hold a grudge over everything that is English. Uh, English society is not perfect. There are many problems. But in playing football terms, where they have cleaned up the game and organized venues is an example. Um, uh, they said, well, you're, you're an Argentine guy in England. Is, are they all having a go at you because, you know, the Falklands and all? He says, no, quite the opposite. They show me a great deal of affection and sadness. People had family and friends serving Malvinas. He does say Malvinas, obviously. Mm. Uh, even people that were on the island and have run into me have shown me an affection and lamented what happened. This captured my attention greatly. Mm. I love that. This captured my attention greatly. It's a very Champions League weekly uh, quote. <laughs> yeah. um, says he doesn't want technology in football, uh, not because he likes the argument down the pub, uh, but because literally... He thinks cheating is is an important part of the game. Hmm. Uh, he says the the one exception is uh, goal line technology because there's no delay. It's it's instant justice, instant justice. But the rest are things that happen in football, and that is the essence of it, the beauty of the game. Uh, I I wouldn't understand if football were to be stopped like tennis when they use Hawkeye. No, football is dynamic. Every day should be more dynamic, vibrant, and intense. If we're going to stop all the time to make a decision, we'll distort football. Football is a game for the clever, filled with deceit. I mean that in the sporting sense. I'm not talking about diving into the pool to get a penalty, this translation says. You know, diving yeah, into the pool. We got it. Um, uh, football is surprise and creative malice. It should not be robotic, but creative. So basically, uh, if you can get away with stuff, that's, Go nuts. that's the whole uh, point of this, um, of this game. Um, uh, and he says also he's got that thing of the global wanderer. What do people in Argentina know about you? Because he's he's not really apparently that big a deal in Argentina yet. You know, he was like yeah. a, a player. He he gave away a penalty in the World Cup against England in two thousand and two. You know, he didn't play for the. He was the guy who chopped down Michael. Well, didn't really chop down Michael Owen. Owen dived over him, uh, which I'm sure Pochettino appreciated. You know, yeah. Owen got what he got what he could get. Yeah, tip of the cap to you, Michael. Yeah. Um, but he says, uh, "I believe I'm from nowhere now. I have a Spanish passport for for Spaniards." I am Argentine. The English say Argentine coach Pochettino Spurs. They don't say the Spaniard Pochettino, but in Argentina they say it's Lamela Spurs, not Pochettinos. Um, so look, uh, big game for him this yeah. weekend. And, you know, going by the table, they are now the closest challengers to Chelsea. And uh, I wouldn't fancy playing them if I was uh, Pep Guardiola at the moment. No, no, not really. Uh, not really looking so good. But you mentioned, you were talking about Marino High, talking uh, talking about how football gets dragged into things to mm. be made an example of. I noticed Michael Michael Gove. Um, Do you call him crusading journalist or political firebrand? Um, Which one of those two descriptions more closely aligned to Michael Gove as of right now? Uh, tremendously impressed by gold taps, Michael Gove. <laughs> yeah. Uh, went to Trump Tower and was just tremendously impressed, bowled over by Donald Trump and how magnificent he was. Mm. His his, uh, his sodium American. orange skin, yeah. his hair blonder than the hair you've ever seen. You've never seen hair like, hair like you've never seen before. And, That's certainly true. And uh, his electric, his electrifying presence and all of this kind of stuff. Soaring rhetoric, African-American lift. Immensely dignified, immensely yeah. dignified African-American Lift attendant wearing white cotton gloves and a frock coat, as though uh, in as though he was in Gone with the Wind. Mm. Let's make America great again for that guy. So I mean, people, I'm sure people have seen, but it actually wasn't to do with his um, his little groveling interview um, 
which which by the way I would have I I, I imagine ninety percent of the people who work for the Times of London must have been embarrassed by like is the is the man from the Times supposed to be blown away by gold fittings marble and this you know the the proximity of power it's just so craven and abject but it wasn't actually that it, he was referring he 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 tweeted a an article uh, in the New York Times which is a, which is all about how people uh, hate meritocracy um, uh, or Europe has fallen out of love with its meritocratic elite. And there are some reasonable points about there. Like the insufferable thing about a meritocracy is that the people who, you know, emerge at the top are doubly insufferable. Not because not just are they not they they're not only the winners, but they also think of themselves as being the best. Mm. Now the thing about that is that, I mean, it's a it's a reasonable point. He, the the guy uh, Ivan Krastev was the was the writer of this piece that so impressed Michael Gove, um, and there's a reasonable point there in that. You know, uh, if 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 it's uh, if people who have who have merged on top uh, of you know the economy, this sort of class system, think of themselves as totally deserving it, um, as in a meritocracy, then that's even more insufferable to everybody else because they're like, oh Jesus, you know. But actually, that's the way people at the top always think, regardless of the system. I mean, aristocracy uh, whether literally they deserve it or not. Aristocracy literally means rule by the best. You know what I mean? So whoever's at the top always thinks that they deserve it. It's it's never hard work. It's never luck, rather. It's always mm. hard work and talent, natural ability, natural like in golf. Yeah. You know, natural ability is the, is the thing. Not pra- sometimes it's not you about just practice. pick up. You just you just pick up a, a sporting implement, and you can you you're just automatically brilliant at that sport. That's just. But unfortunately, it, that's just the way it is. But this this takes a little detour into. T- he gives an example drawn from the reason I'm talking about this. Is that he gives an example drawn from what he refers to as soccer, because he is writing the New York Times. He says, in Europe, the meritocratic elite, and when he says the meritocratic elite, he means like, uh, you know, a banker who, uh, or, you know, a lawyer, or Mm. someone who is highly trained in some professional sphere and moves around Europe to the various top institutions and gets paid a lot of money. Uh, In Europe, the meritocratic elite is still a, a mercenary elite, not unlike the way the best soccer players are traded around the most successful clubs across the continent. Successful Dutch bankers move to London, competent German bureaucrats move to Brussels, European institutions and banks, just like soccer clubs spend colossal amounts of money acquiring the best players. Usually this system means victories on the pitch or in the central bank's boardroom. But what happens when these teams start to lose or the economy slows down? Because it's kind of a double, it's, it's a twin track analogy here. Yeah, so, no, I'm following so far. What happens when these teams start to lose? Their fans abandon them. Do, do they? <laughs> <laughs> they don't. That's not what happens. That doesn't happen. Fortunately, that's uh, not the case th- at all. That's because there's no relationship connecting the players and their fans beyond celebrating victories. They are not from the same neighborhood. They don't have mutual friends or shared memories. Many of the players aren't even from the same countries as their teams. You can admire the hard stars, but you do not have reason to be sorry for them. That's honestly the worst football analogy I've ever seen. Yeah, it, you know, it, I, I, it makes no sense on its own. It doesn't even illustrate the point that he's making. Uh, but it, maybe it is a good example of what Marina Hyde was talking about in her column. Um, in fact, when anybody writing this type of piece drags in football, you can take it almost as read that this. Yeah, they've they've lost complete control of what they're ju- trying to say. It's yeah. just gone off the rails. Yeah. This thing has has left uh, the rails. Uh, anyway, so where are we? A um, couple of other things. Mar- uh, Manchester United. Well, maybe United, can, and then we can wrap it up. Manchester United back on top of the 
Deloitte Football Money League Rich List. Uh, Manchester United, thanks to phenomenal growth in sponsorship income, have uh, have because because this these new figures do not take into account yet the new and improved TV deal that these uh, Premier League clubs are going to be on from this season for the next uh, and the next two seasons after this one. Um, so with that, they'll be going up even further. Although Deloitte do say, and I don't know if this is a bit political from Deloitte, but Deloitte do say the main factor inhibiting um, the dominance of Premier League clubs of this top 30 is the fact that this that everybody thinks Sterling is going to lose more value and it already has lost, you know, since mm. since last summer. Um, it's down by about a sixth. And uh, that obviously, given that their earnings are all expressed in sterling, when you convert it to euro, it's uh, they look like they've got less money. In mm. fact, they, I guess they, they have got Actually, less money. Have less Manchester United are making 363 million euros uh, from uh, sponsorship, which is 53% of their overall income. Um which is yeah, which is which is interesting. I mean, it, there's a couple of things about it. One, it suggests they're a little bit anti anti fragile in a way because strong. You mean? Well, no, I use that word advisedly, Karen. Okay, okay. Anti fragile does seem like a rather strange. Well, uh, well, for instance, a, frag- a, a fragile, a fragile economic model for uh, Manchester United say would be if most of their money was coming from television. At the moment, in fact, 27% of their money comes from TV, comes from broadcasts. Mm. 27% broadcast, 53% commercial, 20% match day. Um, the thing about that broadcast money is that uh, while it's obviously great, it is subject to uh, variation. Yeah. Uh, now, the variation has all been in one direction in recent years. Uh, the TV deals keep jumping by, you know, mm. more than half in each sort of three-year period, which has been just this insane growth. That's how, you know, um, you've got so many Premier League clubs in the top 30. The TV money is so much bigger than anywhere else. But since the TV ratings are now falling, and the TV ratings, I mean, Bloomberg had done a piece on this during the week where they looked at sort of the the ratings for the top six clubs, the current top six in the Premier League, looked at them going back to, you know, 2010, 2011. And uh, discovered 2012, the, the season that Man City won the league, the Aguero League uh, season, was the peak. And since then, you've seen this decline. Um, and it's 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 you can see it across all of the teams, uh, and it's kind of steady over the over the seasons. So, what are the reasons for that? I mean, there's a bunch of different possible reasons. Um, but if it equates to lower ratings and a long-term de- decline in in ratings for this um, for this stuff, I don't see how that supports increasing the amount of money that the clubs get paid from television. I mean, fewer people are watching it on TV. It's difficult to see how TV companies can continue to pay more or even continue to pay the same amount of money. Um, that's going to be a, a reckoning, I think, that Premier League clubs are going to be worrying about. Mm. And this this thing doesn't happen... It, it, you know, it doesn't happen kind of, you know, gently, you know, that BT and Sky come out, oh, I'm going to offer you, you know, you know, 4% less than the last time, if that's all right. I mean, surely if they sense any weakening in the bulletproof nature of, you know, football as a, as a TV entity, then they immediately say, 
you know, we're, we're screwed here. This is good. Everything is pointing in the wrong direction. Here's 50% less than we offered last time. Or yeah. whatever, about 50. But, I mean, you know, this, these things don't happen gently. They happen in a crash. Well, what, happen, what, what has happened a few times, I mean, it happened with Kirsch in Germany. It happened with ITV Digital in uh, in England with the championship. It happens with um, Satanta in the UK. Yeah. Um, what happens, uh, or, or the danger has been, that the TV, co- you know, you think of the TV companies as being just, oh, yeah, they can obviously pay. But actually, they've made commitments which are now beyond their ability to pay. Now, Sky is a bit is a bigger company, but, you know, they're still talking about a lot of money. BT is obviously a gigantic company, but, yeah. you know, the thing that's been inflating the, the rights has been the competition between the, those two entities. But, you know, if they're getting to a point where the game isn't worth the candle... Um, Anyway, the point about Manchester United that I was making is that if 53% of their income is coming from other commercial sources, in other words, all of the sponsorship deals they do, from the massive ones like, you know, the kit deal and, you know, the training kit deal and, and you know, name, tra- you know, all these kinds of all things. All the way down to Casaliero del Diablo. Exactly. <laughs> all the way down. And the, what that means is that, okay, at, at any point, one of these deals or 10 of these deals might go pop or people might decide they're not interested anymore, but... There's so many of them that actually, it, collectively, this is a very stable mm. kind of a stream of income. You know, this is like well, changes. Mem- Memphis Depay, you know, spend a vast amount of money on him, uh, bring him in, he's terrible, sell him, yeah. doesn't matter. Well, they can afford to make those mistakes. I mean, just it, it's it, previously that might have been a three million pound player they have to sell for 1.5 million instead of a 30 million pound player they're selling for 15 or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it does change to an extent what the, what the club actually is there to do because previously the entire the income of the club was derived from playing football matches winning football competitions you know people coming to the game more people would come to the game the better you played you know your gate receipts kind of fluctuated in response mm. to your success to to a large extent even that's true even of a club like Manchester United which, which have a large and you know quite loyal fan base still the crowds would fluctuate so the better you played the more money you made Obviously, the amounts of money we're talking about were much less. But it was football that was the driver of your commercial success. Whereas now, <laughs> your commercial success almost is independent of football. You know, it's it's like your your results... You know, you know Manchester United, are, okay, they were in the Champions League for the season that these figures are for. They're not in the Champions League now, you know. But they do have po- hashtag Pogba. Mm. You know what I mean? And that is actually what it's about now. When I say what it's about, I mean, that's... That that is in the financial sense. That's where they're making their money. It's all of that type of stuff. It's not really to do with the football anymore. The football is kind of a secondary thing now. To this, um, they're not what they're what they're selling now. What Manchester United sells now is not Manchester United football as takes place on the pitch at Old Trafford and various away grounds, but all the people who are watching Manchester United. That's what they sell to all you know, Mr. Potato, Castillero mm. del Diablo, Adidas. And all of the other uh, companies who together are contributing 53% and probably a rising share of their income. So it's, it's a very different game. That's the end of your report on sport, Kenny. What, you, what are you saying? You're just a phony, man. This is just what I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day. Supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But, brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. 
I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other was Brady oh, you, can, you can run around like you a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. Oh. I don't play this, man. You can't teach that. Emmett Malone joins us in studio now. How are you doing, Emmett? Hi, Ken. So, uh, you had an exciting assignment yesterday. Oh, I certainly did. Uh, going along to the Joint Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport, uh, as they spoke to John Delaney, Philip Brown and Porrick Duffy. Mm. What exactly was the purpose of this uh, gathering? Uh, I think ostensibly it was to find out how uh, how the three sports have been run and uh, to explore the challenges in strategies that face these, these major sports organisations going forward. Right. I think in reality, it was for, uh, you know, quite a few of the, t- the the TDs and senators involved to tick some boxes so that they could, uh, next time they're on the doorsteps, tell people, uh, you know, that of various kind of with various interests, that they had put that very point to John Delaney um, when when he appeared before their committee some time ago. Well, will we, will we hear a sample of, of some of the kind of questioning that oh, you yeah, let's. We'll, we hear from Kevin O'Keefe here, the Fiendfall TD from Cork East. Thank you, Chairman. Um, I too would like to welcome the, the guests here today. Um, we speak for the three powerhouses of uh, sports in this country at the moment, be it from uh, national or inter-county uh, basis. And uh, I suppose you can have but be praiseworthy here, like you're on, trying to be critical. It's going to be impossible, but I'm sure we'll find issues as we go along. Um, I suppose very interesting comment made there is about the availability of players. And historically, like, you know, you remember players depending on the background, it, 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 it detailed what sport they played, even colleges. Like even last week now in, in my own county, Christian Brothers from Cox City were in the, the Hattie quarterfinal, which is a, a major thing, like, you know, playing my own from Alan Merton, St. Thomas College. One time you wouldn't see a rugby ball inside the gate. So are we putting fierce demand on the juveniles growing up that, that, that now they, they have to seem to be playing more chords you see, there lately, one of the good role players, Sweetman, was well done three quarters of sport, eventually to make the call. But um, will they have to be making the call sooner for their own, for, for their own health and fitness point of view, like, you know, in, in regards which way they go? Like, because it is a big thing, like, you know, the parishes are under pressure. Parliament, you know, the people are migrating to, to the villages, or to the, the bigger hubs and, and, and cities. And you see the amalgamations. But I would be concerned about know, um, the players' availability. Are we asking them too much to play four or five courts when they're in college and that, like, you know, and maybe we should start drawing nine's recommendations earlier that they can focus on the, the, the court that they feel they're better at. But that's another day's talk, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. You've gone for one of the tougher ones there, I see. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the question was a difficult question in that I wasn't sure exactly what the answer of that question would have been. but even if It would have been a lot shorter than the question, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, what was really strange about it was that, I mean, I, I would have been interested to hear John Delaney answering that question yeah. after it was asked, but for some reason this committee took place in the format. Yeah. Where, where I, I mean, I was expecting, you know, question, answer, follow-up question, answer, follow-up yeah. question. But instead... There was, you know, six or seven uh, representatives yeah. who, who who asked a lot of questions. Sim- you know, I mean, we've we've chosen a reasonably representative example, <laughs> um, uh, and and that went on for I, I don't know thirty five or forty minutes. Yeah, sure. Before and, and John Delaney is writing down questions in, in like a, mm. a notepad, mm. 
and he then at the end sort of came round to yeah. So so it was worse than it was intended to be because uh, I think the original intention was that three or four of the politicians, which was like half those present, um, would ask the questions and they were allowed to direct them to all three uh, CEOs, okay? Uh, but actually, John Delaney had to be somewhere else. He, he, had, he came with he an had, exit strategy. He had made it clear in advance that he had to be back in Abbottstown uh, where they were naming a part of the inside of the building after Milo Corcoran. The Milo Corcoran International Department. Yeah. Um, so that apparently had to happen yesterday. They were thanking him. I mean, look, you know, the, the FAI is, enti- is entirely entitled um, to pay tribute to its own former uh, president and a long-time board member, although they're all long-time board members, to be fair. Um, uh, but... You know, this is the national parliament. Um, we had a situation 18 months ago when the five million thing with Thierry Henry, you know, FIFA happened, where that committee considered, but ultimately decided against bringing in Delaney to answer questions specifically to that. And there were reports, very widespread reports, that he had phoned around members of the committee saying that he didn't want to appear before it. But we saw yesterday, you know, like for a start, that he really had nothing ever to fear from the committee, you know, no matter what the topic was. But we also have a situation whereby these people are elected representatives, however poor the questioning was yesterday, however much of a joke the whole process was, um, and yet, John Delaney comes in to answer questions for the first time, I think, in about five years. I, I, like I was, at, I, I was at what I think was his last committee appearance, which was about five years ago, which was pretty much on a par with yesterday. And he arrives and he has somewhere to be. Um, so, like, listen, lads, I'll give you an hour and a half and then I've got to nip off. Um, and so what happens is that they, ask, they get everybody, all eight people who are there, to ask all their John Delaney questions in one go. So when it comes to Delaney, he has over 30 questions to answer, Mm. some of which are, what do you think of the World Cup expansion? What are you going to do about concussion? Like open-ended things, some of which are quite perfectly valid but could require, you could spend an afternoon on by themselves. And, and, And one is, you know, why did you completely disregard the recommendation, the key recommendation of the Genesis report, which said you should have outside directors on your board? Mm. And all of them get one line or about five seconds as he rattles them off. And like with the best one in the world, I'm not criticising Delaney for this, you know, because, because you know, what, what can you do in that format? Oh, no, yeah. nobody, could, nobody could do any of the stuff justice. Um, but, you know, each question gets the same amount of time, the same amount of importance, and, and any of the serious questions that were asked, the ones that weren't just asked to tick some sort of box, because somebody had made primarily Imelda Munster and Catherine Murphy, who'd done a little bit of research and, you know, asked some slightly informed questions, um, um, they were just lost in the in the mix, and 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 there was virtually no time to follow them up. I'd say I actually admired John Delaney a little bit for the way in which he he treated the committee with the respect it possibly deserved. Arriving, uh, essentially saying, "Look, I can I can give you a few minutes, but I've got to be out of here." And uh, and for some reason, they agreed to go along with his schedule. Well, well, well certainly, I, 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 it did occur to me that eighteen months ago, if I remember correctly, the uh, the reason given essentially for him not wanting to appear was that he was too busy. And actually, I can understand if he had anything half decent on, then really, you know, he was better off giving this sort well, of. This stuff is a guy who's, who's visited two thousand two hundred. Yeah, clubs, you know. Now, now, th- yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I remember going out to to speak with John Delaney uh, a few years back, and I was in his kind of anteroom to his office, and uh, and the, the walls are, you know, 
thick. You cannot see a, an inch of paint or uh, or wallpaper for all the mementos he's been given on his club visits. I mean, he. I think at the time, he, he knew the running total off the top of his head. It was at the time, it was like 1,853 club visits he'd done. And, you know, I, I would have said there was 1,853 mementos in that room, you know. <laughs> and uh, But this used to be the preserve of elected officers. That's what the president did. That's what the, you know, the other members of, of the committee did. They went around, they shook hands and they doled out the checks. You've got all these functionaries who yeah, don't really have any other functions. Absolutely. The guy who's paid 360 grand is supposed to be back at the ranch doing the spade work. But, you know, not for John. He does 2,200 club visits. Yeah. And that's supposed to be regarded as value for money. What were the... When, when you went along to it, what were the things that you were expecting or maybe hoping yesterday? To see? Yeah, I wasn't expecting much yesterday, to be no. fair, because I'd been to one before. Right. Um, I was expecting the introductory remarks by the TDs to be more fawning and longer. Um, but more, I, more, yeah. But I, but I think they were cut short because John was under a bit of pressure. Uh, the uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't the, get the that. chair I mean, of the uh, committee, Brendan uh, Griffin, uh, uh, warned the TDs beforehand that they had to they had to keep things to. Um, uh, to, 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 you know, keep it focused. Yeah, exactly. Why would yeah. Laser so, so we got the... to John O'Mahony, he said, you know, John O'Mahony said, I won't, you know, I won't do the welcomes. They've all been done before. But you're all very welcome, lads. <laughs> but why, why would the TDs do that? They're supposed to be the important people at their own committee. I mean, why are they? Why are they? I don't know. I, you know, we, you know, look. There was a bit of stuff on social media last night to the effect that all the committees are like this. That you know, is is ignorant. I really hope that's ignorant. not true. Uh, yeah. Well, so do I. Exactly. I mean, I've seen some 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 of the action from the from the banking committee when it reached its its business end, and it was certainly more focused. And and you know, um, uh, it, it, it was it was it was tougher stuff. And some of the you know, you saw some real questions being asked, some real follow ups being asked, and some bankers having to provide some real answer. Maybe maybe. There's like the banking equivalent of second captains and they were all on the next day falling about the place, laughing about what a fiasco that was, you know. <laughs> we're just too stupid to realise it, you know. Um, but, uh, but you know, like certainly what, what was done yesterday, there was no kind of effort to, 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 to scratch um, beneath the surface. And I think what you have is for most, most part, the impression you got yesterday and the impression I got last time was that these guys want to make it absolutely clear that they are friends of football. I mean, the clip you just... Um, the clip you just played, O'Keefe says at one point in it that it would be impossible to be critical of the sports organisations. Mm. I mean, that's shameful stuff. Absolutely shameful. I mean, you know, the, the, all three organisations do great work, you know, absolutely wonderful work in, the, in, in their various ways, including the FAI. And I would be very critical of, of the, the way the FAI is run at times and of John Delaney at times. And, you know, but they do magnificent work in loads of areas. And I would be the first one to admit that. And, and you know, I kind of happen to think that that gets enough attention. And so, you know, because people like the politicians who dole out this money completely abdicate their responsibility um, to, to be critical of the way that, that, that it's run, to look at the governments properly, to call for improvements, to, to hold the, uh, the chief executive of the organisation to account, then more responsibility falls on the media to do that. And, um, and, and I think that's a real problem, you know. John Delaney went in there yesterday and made it absolutely clear from the outset. I mean, in his, in his opening address, he made the point more than once and he went re- returned to it during his answers that the organisation gets a mere 2.7 million euro in 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 funding from the government mm. and the, the, the which mess- is what which is what proportion of its six percent he, he said it was six percent of his uh, of its turnover and the message was absolutely clear the message was look guys you don't really have um uh, the, the the right to give us much much uh, uh, hassle here because we don't really get all that much money from you. You know, we get all the, like we get twice as much from UEFA, and we get our probably actually be more like four or five times as much from UEFA. And so, you know, well, 
we're kind of here. We'll have a chat, like you know, tell you a bit about what's going on. But like we're really, we're not really up for taking much grief here. Mm. But the reality is that football is subsidised at every level. You know, mm. clubs like my own son's club play in the local park on a, on, a, on a council pitch, which is maintained and, and provided at a subsidy. The players in the League of Ireland. He was asked yesterday about the whole idea of keep, trying to keep players in the League of Ireland rather than going across to England. Players in the League of Ireland after 10 years get to claim their tax back, you know, on their career. That's a major subsidy. All of the RDOs, the regional development officers that John Delaney routinely boasts about the network that they have across the country, most of them are, 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 are uh, the cost of them is split with the local council or with colleges or whatever. All public money. Um, most of the grounds in the country, whatever developments have been done down the years, have been, you know, done with public money. He bo- boasted yesterday about the FEI's role in saving Daily Man Park and other grounds, but taking Daily Man Park, which is a wonderful initiative and absolutely John Delaney was instrumental in starting that ball rolling along with a number of politicians and the two clubs themselves but the FAI are not putting a penny into saving Daily Man Park Dublin City Council and the central government are the ones who will cough up the money it's taxpayers money and the FAI like all the other sports organisations should be held to account for all of the money that they got whether it's a direct check from the sports department or whether it comes from other some other branch of the public service. Yeah. And I suppose yesterday was was the accountability. I mean, it's John Delaney turning up and, and being held accountable yeah. and doing doing what he had to do. And it's not really, can't blame him if, if he was being asked questions like, no. uh, there are issues with League of Ireland clubs at the AGM. Is that an issue for you? There are issues with League of Ireland clubs. Is that an issue? Like that was that that was one of the questions. I mean, okay. that, that would, I mean, look, every year at the AGM, this this came up. I think Catherine Murphy mentioned it as well, and possibly somebody else mentioned the AGMs and the problems at the AGMs. And there are problems at the AGMs, and the, and the problem at the AGM is that nobody asks any questions because, uh, I mean, John Delaney said yesterday that it's because there are ten thousand committees and there are ten thousand questions asked at those committees, and there's loads of accountability. But actually, if you talk to the clubs that go to these um, uh, uh, to these AGMs, and certainly the the, the the, the critics from the game generally of, of Delaney and the way the organisation is run, they are too frightened to ask questions because they believe that there will be consequences for their leagues, their, their associations, their clubs, if they are openly critical of Delaney at those AGMs in front of the media. And so there has barely been a question. I think there's one in the last five years. One question in, in years. the last five years at the AGMs. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so that is what the media is critical of every year. And for the last, you know, I mean, John Delaney has stopped doing interviews. He used to do a kind of, you know, press conference, an open-ended press conference with the media after the AGMs. He stopped doing those about four or five years ago um, at two or three, uh, two of the last three press uh, AGMs, I think. We ended up then attempting to submit a list of questions for answering. They have never been answered. So there is this, you know, so the media go away then and criticise him for this lack of accountability at the AGM. And yesterday we have two and possibly three politicians um, getting completely the wrong end of the stick about what the criticisms of those JGMs are. Yeah. And basically allowing uh, Delaney to say, oh, well, you're reading that from the media, and yeah. then immediately saying, oh, well, that's, that's all, you know, that, that as far as we're concerned, this is fake news. He said, he said, the, he said the, media, the media doesn't reflect reality, um, or at least he said often the media doesn't reflect reality, which... Uh, yeah, yeah he, was, he didn't quite and so far as to call the you know the Irish media a failing pile of garbage, but the, uh, <laughs> the implication was absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which you know, look, it's no great shock that that's the way he feels about us, you know. But that's fine. I mean, I, I don't expect the, the you know John Delaney to love the media. He you know he gets what he considers is a hard time from from it. I think the reality is that you know the people who cover the game closely have have you know come to see that there are a great many flaws, or they believe there 
great many flaws in the way he, he runs the organisation, in the, the way that the people around him allow him to run the organisation, the structure of it that, you know, plays into his hands completely, a structure that he was, you know, centrally involved in, in devising in the first place. But even on the level yesterday, again, it was just so disappointing. Um, one of them, one of the, one of the uh, I'm trying to figure out which one it was, was it Frank Fane, the Fine Gael, uh, senator? Uh, one of them said that he'd gone on a bus to, um, to Italia 90 or, or to uh, Stuttgart. Um, yeah. And that all they had in that those days was a guide from the evening press to, to show them the way. And, and now there's mobile phones and there's, and there's the internet and all that sort of stuff. But he concluded in something about fan embassies. And he asked, um, he asked John Delaney, do you know, do you, do, you think, uh, do you think fan embassies would be a good thing going forward? Well, mm. well there were fan embassies at, at, Euro the Euro, two, yeah. at, at Euro 2016. I think there were, I'm pretty sure there were fan embassies at Euro 2012. But at Euro 2016, there were fan embassies. And John Delaney, it should be noted, said that yes, he thought they were a very good idea going forward. Yeah. That yeah. was pretty much the extent of his answer. No reference to the fact they already exist or to the fact that at Euro 2016, the organisation that signed the deal, it was like a fans organisation that signed the deal with UEFA to run those fans organisations, uh, then did in turn, uh, came to arrangements with organisations in each of the participating countries. And in Ireland, they, they, they came, that, that arrangement was with the FAI because the FAI insisted that it be with them rather than a, a supporters organisation. And so the FAI provided the people to staff that, uh, to that staff, that staff embassy. The difficulty with that being they were actual staff members and completely contrary to the rules of the way those fan embassies were supposed to be run, they were also doing their day jobs, which involved distributing tickets, which was expressly prohibited by the uh, fans' uh, embassies uh, governing body in association with UEFA. And so in the end, that organisation had to sack the FAI for money in the fan embassy and ask people from YBIG to step in as volunteers to run it for the remainder of, of Ireland's involvement in it. Well, the guy who was asking the questions yesterday didn't seem to know any of that, despite the fact it's been in the papers. John Delaney seemed to forget all about it or didn't seem to feel it was worth, worth a mention, you know? Yeah. But that's, that's what passes for accountability. In terms of the... the Sorry. No, it, it just a, a broader point, I think, that, say, last year was obviously there were so many stories about sports administrators in Ireland. And one of those stories was an email sent to uh, Pat Hickey telling him that he should put our Minister for Sport back in his box. Yeah. And when I read that, I was appalled. I mean, I, I thought, that's, that's us, you're basically telling us to be put back in our box. Watching that yesterday, it... Change, suffice to say, it changed my thinking on that email quite a bit, yeah. I must say. And like that's that can't be right. Like that can't be right from our point of view as people who love sport, people who watch sport and pay for sport. That yeah, that that's that's the standard that we're. Well, at. I I think generally, I mean, Ken has already said about the, you know John John treating the 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 committee with the respect that it deserved. Honestly, I sat through got large chunks of that looking. At, at, at Pork Duffy, Philip Brown and John Delaney and thinking these guys are doing really well to keep a straight face and yeah. what what must they be thinking as they look at these guys <laughs> and listen to some of the questions there was the John, John Delaney only, only smiled uh, at the very end when they were all thanking him for his time uh, having run only 10 minutes over um, but the only time he looked a little bit annoyed was when he uh, there, were, there were one or two Substantive issues. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, I think Munster and Murphy, in, in, to be fair to them, yeah. uh, raised some raised some interesting issues. And, and, and I mean, so really, if you stripped, if you dispensed with the GA and the RFU from yesterday, dispensed with most of the committee, and and left 
probably just those two uh, TDs in the room and gave them three hours with John Delaney to ask questions. You feel that something productive might have been achieved. He might, to be fair, have answered every question adequately. You know, we'll yeah, never that's know. That's it. That's exactly it. We'll never yeah, know. Yeah, we'll never know. I mean, maybe John's he's a clever guy and he has he has a lot of answers. Um, so maybe maybe he would be able to explain why they disregarded the Genesis reports, key recommendation, why they, you know, uh, what they did with Let's, 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 let's talk things, about that gen- the Genesis report thing. Because okay. that was... Um, that was uh, Catherine Murphy brought this up and, and essentially was saying was was talking about the composition of the FAI board. Yeah. And Genesis report. Um, it was meant to. I, I think the recommendation was that there was meant to be five people on the board and two of them were supposed to be independent. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, and I'm open to do correction on this, yeah. but I seem to remember when the Genesis report was published, John Delaney went on prime time and said that, as far as he was concerned, all he wanted to see was Genesis in in, in you know implemented in full. And then he would be a happy man and he would walk away. Mm. And here we are, you know, 15 years later, and he's still the chief executive of the organization. And Genesis has never been implemented yeah. in full. So it was meant to be five board members, two of which are, in, are independent, non-executive directors. At least two of which are at independent. Least, at least yeah. two. And instead of which we've got 10 board 10, members? 10, about to be 11, yeah. And, and no independent. And no independent, yeah. Absolutely no outside influence whatsoever. And John said yesterday that Genesis came back sometime afterwards and said they were more than satisfied with the way their report had been uh, had been uh, yeah. implemented. I mean, I'm not sure whether that was the day they came back to collect the cheque, um, but, you know, I, how they could possibly... I, I remember the presentation that was given at the launch of, of, the Genes- of Genesis, and I remember the emphasis that was put on the composition of the new board, the importance of it. And, um, and, that, is, that, it, and that would be absolutely key to believing in, you know, the, the FAI's governance being up to scratch. Um, what we have is a board who essentially are perceived, 10 members, are per- essentially believed to, to depend for the, their, their positions on John Delaney, mm-hmm. while at the same time he gets to say that he works for them. And really, very few people that I've ever talked to in football believe that that is the way this should be done. Mm. And certainly Sport Ireland's recommendations on how boards should be run bear very little relation to the way the FAI's board is run. And, and it is, as you, as you pointed out in your piece, uh, uh, an ageing board. You know, yeah. The average age is 65. The, the maximum age was raised by John Delaney to 75. That's... Which, is, which is, I think, when there are, two of them are 77. So two of them... I mean, the 75 bit, I think, is when they're elected to the board, when they start what are, are often four-year terms. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it should be remembered that the, the UEFA used to have no age limits on boards. And then the FAI, many years ago, proposed a, a rule change at UEFA level, which brought in age limits. And those age limits persist, at, I think it's 70, at, at UEFA. But last year or two years ago, the FAI changed their rules back to allow key allies of John Delaney to stay on the board. I mean, I mean, it's not as if they'd be replaced with enemies of them, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the fact is that these are, you know, might be fairly, I think, described as loyalists. Yeah. Um, and they, and the, the rules were expressly changed to allow those people to run for election again. I mean, I, I, you know, it runs absolutely contrary to, to everything. Anybody who writes about good governments, uh, you know, and national sports organisations, mm. governing bodies, um, uh, says it's it, it's And we have the same people staying there for decades virtually you know and um, uh, there's no sign of change to any of this none whatsoever okay well uh, when's the next time you expect to be hearing from John Delaney in, in some public setting um, well, not, no time soon I guess you know uh, I mean the standard practice maybe the AGM 
Yeah, I don't think. Well, he'll he'll make a speech there. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he the, 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 look. The last time was the Euro twenty twenty thing, and he talked a little bit then, and uh, he answered a few questions about the changes in the League of Ireland. But the format, the, the situation was quite clear. We asked him, uh, we asked him a question, and um, we asked him a couple of questions, and he said he had to be on his way, or or the communications director said that John had to be on his way. And then what what we got into was a little kind of a little dance where um, where we would ask him a question, and John would be starting to walk away, and uh, and it would be a question about the League of Ireland. Ireland and he'd go no 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 I'll answer this and he'd come back and he and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he'd answer that and he'd start to walk away and there'd be another question and uh, and then he'd go oh no no, no I'll, I'll, I'll answer that one and uh, and then I asked him about uh, Pat Hickey and uh, the OCI and uh, and at that point he really did have to go apparently yeah 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 well I, th- I think everyone who watched it would have learned something from from John Zane. if you do have a potentially unpleasant uh, appointment in any sense. Just yeah. turn up and, and say, "Look, I've actually got to go in just a couple of minutes, but I will give you the a minute or two of time. <laughs> but I will have to go, just so you know." The guy's a pro. He knows how to handle himself. Emma Blount, thanks many for coming in and talking to us about that today. Thank you. Beef made a movie recently. Did they? John Delaney could run anything. They did. They did. About themselves. Yeah, about themselves. God, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Sam Blatter. Yeah, that is that's incredible ego. But the real movie's on its way. Yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself. And I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you, with one or two expletives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, what well, I do. And that was it, with one or two expletives. And I just asked him to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds. And I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, uh, there were some expletive views. We came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement, definitely. And you've used the figure there. Well done to you. Yeah, I think that's uh, probably enough John Delaney for one day. Yeah. Uh, Marco Van Basten, Ken, has come up with some ideas that if John Delaney were to come up with them, would possibly raise an eyebrow. Yeah, but you know, it's Marco Van Basten, so uh, he knows a thing or two mm-hmm. about the game. Um, well, he's working as the technical director at FIFA now, so he's at. Uh, he's actually had some. He, he's got a little bit of a history in terms of. He, he he did write a kind of a treatise a few years ago, like maybe ten years, ten even more years ago, where he kind of talked about the ways in which he'd like to see the game change. Mm. Um, this is a guy who had plenty of time to reflect on bad things about the game from the way that he was kicked out of it at the age of 28 with calcified ankles um, as a result of being tackled from behind by all those uh, teak, tucks, teak tough Serie A mm. uh, Ironman defenders. Um, but uh, his big idea is let's just get rid of offside. <laughs> he says, he says um, it can be very interesting watching a game without offside Football now is already looking a lot like handball with nine or ten defenders in front of the goal. Um, I mean, I, that would be a completely revolutionary change. I mean, every everything that you think you know about defending, everything that we have been, you know, all of football tactics would just mm. completely go out the window at that point if there was no offside. It would completely change everything. I mean, what would... The reason that we have offside is to prevent... I mean, what would Sam Allardyce do? 
if if there was no offside? Well, I'm trying to think. Like, where, what would where Jose you, Mourinho do? What would your, Jose Mourinho do if there's no offside? Where is your defensive line? It's like the 18-yard box. They'll have to be all the way back. Yeah. Because if you've got Fellaini and Ibrahimovic standing in front of goal and they can stand there and just wait for a, a 60-yard ball at any Wouldn't point. Wouldn't like to be Claudio Brava. Claudio <laughs> Brava. <laughs> no, the, the, the sweeper-keeper would go straight yeah. out of fashion. Eve. You'd good be, luck. Good night and good luck, Claudio. It, it'd be back to the old uh, the Nigel Spinks, the glory, <laughs> the glory days of uh, of uh, six yard box goalkeepers. Mm. Um, but it's it's an idea that that Van Basten is pushing as as a FIFA technical director. Um, the other idea, which maybe has more chance of being adopted, because the offside thing is, I mean, in theory, okay. I mean, let's think about it. But like, it completely changes the game. Mm. You know, you you end up with something more like Gaelic football. You know, well, I mean, okay, it, it would make more space on the pitch, but like to such an extent that it's you're watching a totally different game. Get rid of the offside rule and make the pitch sixty yards. <laughs> but that could work. A lot of stadiums kind of thinking, well, we're a little bit the wrong size now. Mm. But um, the other idea um, is has to do with the penalty shootouts uh, because he he doesn't like penalty shootouts. Uh, he doesn't like extra time. He thinks that there should be penalty shootout immediately after uh, normal time. Mm. And then it shouldn't be penalty shootout. It should be, uh, okay, here's the ball. You're 25 yards out. You've got eight seconds. Go. I have to say I really want this. to. I, I don't know why we haven't been doing this all along. Mm. Did you watch the Women's Olympics hockey final that Great Britain won? No, I didn't. Penalties are taken like that. It's a lot of fun. It's, much, it's way better. Yeah. Well, it's no. the skill of the game, I mean, as opposed to. Well, if penalties are a skill, but like such a, such a like a, a discrete like a one movement skill. Mm. You know, there's not that much involved. Whereas actually, getting the ball twenty five, you can decide however you want to beat the goalkeeper. It's up to you, but you've got to do it somehow. And there's there's also a lot more um, chance for the goalkeeper to show how yeah. good uh, to show how yeah good the hockey he is. goalkeepers were were brilliant. And we should thank uh, Nicky Simmons, former most capped uh, Irish hockey international of all time. Yeah. for sending a link telling us about Van Basten's uh, big plans yeah. earlier today. Sin bins are his other ideas. Sin bins for our orange cards. Also from hockey, so yeah, Marco yeah. Van Basten want to get a few new ideas of his own. It's, it's basically all I'm saying here, you know? Yeah. Uh, half corners, the whole lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you wanted to talk about uh, Xavi Alonso, though, who has announced his, his retirement at the end of this season. Yeah, Xabi Alonso has uh, has announced that he is going to retire at the end of this season. He's not going to try and get another contract to take him into, I guess, his 37th. I mean, he'll be 36 this year. So, uh, yeah, he's decided that's uh, to call it a day uh, to quit at the top. So we're joined now, actually, by Simon Hughes, um, who wrote a book, uh, which we were, t- we were talking about last year, um, Ring of Fire, Liverpool into the 21st century, the players' stories, which features interviews with some of the kind of key men from that spell in Liverpool's history, one of whom was Xabi Alonso. Uh, so we wanted to talk to you, Simon, because you'd gone over and done this quite recently, uh, over to Bayern Munich to meet with Xabi. How did you find uh, the maestro when you encountered him in Munich? <laughs> yeah, he's... Um, I mean, he is as he seems on the football pitch, I suppose. Um you know, I know I know the word class gets bandied around a bit too frequently now in football. Um but but he is just a, a classy bloke, I think really. Um you know, as a person I think he's the type of football that you wouldn't mind having a you know, a night out with and having a, a chat about football and 
And uh, you know, I think he, he he's a very kind of warm person. I mean, it was it was it was strange really because you know, obviously there's a perception, I suppose, that Bayern Munich are this this big kind of monster football club which, which stops for nobody. But um, you know, when I went there, uh, Bayern Munich's tra- training ground, you know, Chabi was just there waiting on the little. There was like a little um, kind of door in the in the doorway, and it was it was just like I'm over here, you know. Uh, as, as, as the uh, the snow fell down, and you know, had you know plenty of time you know to speak about his uh, well specifically about his time at Liverpool, but just his views on football as well. Um, you know, and he, he, he's he's very articulate. You know, can speak a number of languages. He plays football fantastically. I think. Um, you know, he's a, he's an example to every every young aspiring footballer. I think because of the way he conducts himself. Um, he's just—I don't know—it might sound a little bit trite, but he just—I I just think he, he's a good, good lad, basically. Yeah, Xavi Alonso is probably the slowest footballer I've ever seen. <laughs> he's got—you yeah. he, know—he—I I can't remember seeing him dribble past anybody, um, and yet he yeah. uh, is regarded as one of the best midfield players, you know, of the last ten or twenty years in Europe. Why? Yeah. Uh, how did how did a guy with such sort of limited athletic ability? Become yeah. such a top footballer. Yeah, well, I think um, he touched on that when when I met him. I think I think the real strength as a footballer is that he he understands his own limitations and and is able to to to, com- to compute how to deal with that. So, you know, he, he, I remember him slapping his thighs, saying, "You know, that, that's the problem that I've got. You know, I can't move him quick enough." But he, you know, he. He's very quick in, in the brain and, and, and is very much a team player, so understands where he fits in in the context of the team. And, I mean, he is a, he's a slow-running footballer, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a slow footballer in the sense that you know he, he moves, the, moves the play quickly, he passes it quickly, he never dwells on the ball. I think if you see, I suppose you, you, to compare to some of the Liverpool midfielders now, I know Emre Chan's you know, been criticised for not moving the ball quickly enough and you know, he's a, he's I suppose you, you could say, you know, similar, you know, similar football. He's not a, a, a fast footballer. You know, he, he's quite a heavy footballer, Emery Chan. But I think where he needs to improve is, is how quickly he gets the ball and gives it. And that's what Xabi Alonso has done fantastically. You know, from day one in his football career. I mean, I, I don't really know too many people who, who who kind of speak speak badly of him as a footballer or. Or as a man, I mean, I know he had a, a difficult couple of years at Liverpool when, um, the, you know, the two well, eighteen month period before he 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 left, he had a really good season before he left, and he, before that, it was a bit of a rocky spell where you know his, his ability was being questioned. But you know, I think um, I think that's his greatest strength, really, understanding his own limitations. Um, but you know, being absolutely brilliant at, at what he is good at. Is it a technical? Do, do you think it has to do with? Uh... The technical ability to, you know, the, the actual technical uh, ball striking ability that he had. I mean, I, I remember talking, you know, or hearing Jimmy Carragher talk about this, talking about how he would shoot the ball. Like, you know, it's not players think of, of a pass as almost being kind of a, you know, as, as in a different category from a shot. And Alonso would shoot his passes around, which is which is technically really high level stuff. Not a lot of players can do it. Or is it more about what was happening in his um, in his brain? Do you think that other players? If they could figure it out, would be able to play this way. Yeah, I think it's. I know what you're getting at because I think it is a combination of the two. I remember when you know Carragher's told the story about his first week at um, at Melwood when he signed from Real Sociedad, 
And the thing that really struck him was how aggressively he passed the ball. You know, he did it with authority. You know, there wasn't like any, you know, tapping it. Seeing Gerard says the same thing. If you're going to pass the ball, you know, at a high level, you've got to trust that if you if you hit it hard, that the teammate is going to be good enough to deal with it. And that, that's what Alonso does well. He, he doesn't, you know, mess around with, with the football. He, he, he technically is able to execute, you know, the pass, you know, at the right pace most of the time. And I think when, when I was speaking to him, that, that was, you know, quite clear. That it, I think that comes through, through practice as well. I think there is a certain natural ability, technical ability there, coupled with, his, I suppose, his natural intelligence. But I think um, I think that's too hard work as well. I mean, he's incredible, incredibly hard work. I mean, mum telling me about how when he was a kid, his, his, his dad was obviously a player for, for Barcelona and, and a Real Sociedad and, you know, but those hours spent going to training grounds with his with his with his dad um, when he later managed football clubs wasn't wasted. He didn't just stand around watching what was going on, although he was soaking it in. He'd go out on the pitch as well and, and, and replicate what he'd seen from from his his, his dad was managing. Um, yeah. So he he was subconsciously from a very early age soaking in what football was. You know, good footballers, you know, would do, and um, and good footballers tend to do things quickly. They tend to do things with authority, and um, and that's how he's become as a player. Well, um, so, so sorry. No, he he. Um, you you're talking about his. I mean, obviously, his father was a was a footballer, and he spent a lot of time around clubs mm. as a as a kid. So he's kind of in that environment, or or, or kind of uh, mm. uh, steeping in in the game. Let's say from a very early age. But since he's been a professional as well, he's played for. You know all the top coaches. I mean, he, this is a guy who's played for well, Benitez. I'm not sure how how highly he still thinks of Benitez, but uh, Mourinho, uh, Guardiola, and uh, now Ancelotti at Bayern Munich. So, in terms of exposure to sort of top coaches out there, he's kind of worked with all the the most famous, the the best paid ones. Anyway, do you think he's going to go down that route? Because I kind of wonder. I mean, obviously, his, his former teammate at Liverpool, Jamie Carragher, in former times, maybe he would have become a manager it seems like a lot of players who've been really successful now though made a lot of money actually management is a bit too much like work for them yeah i, I it will be really interesting to see i mean I'd, you can see similar qualities in in chubby and jamie Carragher as people you know i think that you know the way they speak about their childhoods um and how football was just everything in their childhoods it's that just raw you know passion they almost love it too much i think and that, that is a concern, I suppose, for Chabby in the, you know, his, his I know speaking to, to Jamie Carragher that, you know, it would, I think it would concern him if he, if he was to go into coaching and ruin what a great reputation he has now. That, that must go in, that, that must contribute to his, towards his decision making not, not to go into it. And although I know obviously Chabby's kind of moved around a bit and isn't a one, you know, one club man, I think, um, there could be a bit of that in his in, in his in his thought process because when I, when I went to see him it was um, I'm just trying to think of the, the the time so it was February March time last year um, and I did ask him about that um, I mean it, it was quite interesting because he, he he did say oh I'm going to see out my um, contract here until 2017 which he just signed only a couple of weeks before so I think he had that you know this year in mind as, as his final year he didn't really want to go into too much detail about whether he wanted to go into coaching um so i i think if a lot of footballers do this now i mean i know obviously steven jard's going through the same process i think take a, a step back and really think about what he's going to do i think it'd be a shame i think i think 
football is probably missing something. You know, I, I don't think that football football management should just be for ex-players. I think it should be for everybody, but there's so few that are going in. I think football is probably lacking something, you know, with not having that experience passed on through, you know, through fo- across football clubs. So I think it'd be a massive shame if, if he didn't do it. Um, you know, he might, he might in cold analysis, think, you know, I play for all these great clubs, you know, do I really need all this hassle? Um, I mean, I, I don't think I'd, I think you've got to be a bit crazy to be a football manager as well. And I don't know whether he is actually that crazy. Yeah. Well, the book is uh, Ring of Fire, Liverpool in the 21st Century. Um, that's if you want to see the original interview with Alonso and plenty of other figures from that decade in Liverpool's history uh, besides Simon Hughes. Thanks a million for joining us on the show yeah. today. Cheers. Cheers, Ken. You don't get this out with Motherwell. You're a wee mate. Your bags and your desk, boom. Your bags and your desk, boom. I mean it. I'm fucking raging. Speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just so it's soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me. I can't yell me, I can't yell me. I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? Just need to fucking work, wouldn't it? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get out, get out! He's your biggest fool. Okay, that's uh, pretty much it for this show. We have a very special uh, show coming up later today with Richie Sadler in the hot seat, uh, which should hopefully be as critically acclaimed by our listeners as uh, last week. Poor Mark was feeling a little unloved, I feel, after his efforts to follow Richie on Monday. Uh, But uh, that'll be great. In the meantime, that's it for now. Contact us on Twitter at SecondCaptains or email us Editor at secondcaptains.com. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Simon. Thank Owen you, is, Simon, as well. Owen is back uh, next Monday, but for now, thanks for listening. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 